And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, October 4th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a national lab wants to make complex chemistry problems a little more solvable. Plus, a new interagency council aims to improve financial assistance programs. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, big changes are coming to the Army's recruiting apparatus. That's after the Army missed its 2023 recruiting goal by a wide margin and after several consecutive years of recruiting shortfalls. Among other changes, the Army plans to raise the stature of its recruiting command, build a new career field for military recruiters, and start targeting different demographics. We get details from Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. The Army ended fiscal year 2023 with 55,000 new recruits, short of the 65,000 the service had aimed for this year. And not all of those soldiers joined the Army right away. About 4,600 went into the service's delayed entry pool. Christine Warmoth, the Secretary of the Army, says officials always knew the 65,000 target was a stretch goal, and it's not yet clear how many new recruits the Army will be able to manage this year. I think now the the recruiting enterprise in the Army very much understands how important that role is and you know they don't they don't need us to sort of signal to them put the pedal to the metal they did that this year we're going to keep doing that we've got a lot of you know work to do to implement all of these changes so I would imagine we'll settle on something lower than 65,000, but what specifically we still need to sort of talk through with our G1 community. That's partly because some of the changes the Army wants to make will take years to implement. For example, officials want to make a significant change in the types of Americans recruiters spend their time targeting. By 2028, they want at least a third of new recruits to have at least some college education. What we've really tried to focus on, since this is an existential issue for us, is What can we change right now? What can we do to help ourselves? A huge change in the last 20 years is that many more young people go to college coming out of high school today than they used to. So the high school market is actually shrinking. Um, The Army actually gets 50% of our contracts from high school seniors or high school graduates. But when you look at the broader labor market, only 15 to 20 percent of the labor market is comprised of individuals with just high school education. So that's a big change. Meanwhile, there will also be some significant changes to the recruiting workforce. Warmoth says the Army plans to create a new talent acquisition occupational specialty dedicated to recruiting. The new designator will be 42 Tango. Now, again, to enable our recruiters to be successful in going after that changed labor market, we are going to shift from what I would call sort of a borrowed workforce to a permanent specialized recruiter workforce. You know, we essentially um, are most of our recruiters. We do have specialized recruiters, 79 Romeos, but um, Many of our recruiters come from different MOSs all across the Army. You know, they do a stint in recruiting, and then they go back out to do the thing that is their main MOS. You know, unlike the private sector, we do not have a specialized permanent recruiting workforce. We need to change that. We're also going to create a new warrant officer opportunity associated with being a permanent recruiter. 
And we're going to basically start giving our recruiters more training. You know, right now they do not get a lot of additional training to come and be recruiters. We're going to give them opportunities to train with industry, for example, and we're going to start selecting them differently. Today we, we basically use administrative criteria to select our NCOs who recruit. You know, they have basically a background check to make sure that they can, you know, work appropriately with young people. We're going to start using an aptitude test to make sure that the folks that we bring into the recruiting workforce have the kind of skills and attributes to be successful in what is a pretty challenging responsibility. And considering that recruiting issues are existential to the Army, officials have concluded they need to raise the stature of Army Recruiting Command within the service's organizational chart. Going forward, the command will be led by a three-star general rather than a two-star. The relatively new Chicago-based Army Enterprise Marketing Office will also be folded into that command, as will the Army's Cadet Command, which is in charge of recruiting and training officers. And future commanders of Army Recruiting Command will serve unusually long tours of duty in that position for years. We've had great GOs uh, lead USAREC over the years, but their average tenure is around two years. And... You know, I know, uh, and I'll say this on the record, that I'm more effective as the Secretary of the Army at two and a half years in than I was in the first six months. Uh, I hope I'll continue to improve. uh, And this will give the opportunity for that leader to, you know, really understand the job, put new initiatives in motion, and see them through. General Randy George, the Army's Chief of Staff, says the service also wants Recruiting Command to become a center of experimentation that helps refine the Army's approaches to recruiting. Much of that will be led by a new deputy commanding general who's focused on innovation. In my experience, a lot of it, the best ideas usually come from the bottom up. And I'll give you an example. I was up in Albany. There's a sergeant first class who comes who gets an off-the-shelf software and like Indeed or something very similar and starts, you know, canvassing the areas. And he was able just through doing that to figure out how, you know, how they could talk to the recruiters, could talk to the folks that were, might be interested in military who may not have even known about it. So what we're, what we're going to do is make sure that we get the resources and authorities down to USAREC. So not anywhere here in the building, but out in USAREC. Um, we are going to put a DCG, a deputy in USAREC who can focus on innovation, making sure that they have software Um, If there's contracting that needs to happen um, or really pushing through some of the other bureaucratic hurdles that might be resident on occasion, we have somebody to do that. George says the Army also needs to do a much better job of studying and evaluating what works and what doesn't when it comes to recruiting strategies, since those strategies will need to evolve over time. So the service also plans to create a new evidence-based organization at the Pentagon to pour through data about what kind of bang for the buck it's been getting out of different enticements for prospective recruits. We've given bonuses. We've given staging choice. We, we do a lot of these things, and I think what we haven't done a good enough job is, is the data analytics to understand which how are these things working. A real close study of our advertising. Um, a lot of things, honestly, that I think we should have been doing, we haven't been doing, that we need to do as we move forward. And we have um, the ORSA's uh, operations research and the analyst to do that. So we're looking at, at kind of corralling that a little bit together. We have some of that up at West Point Army Research Institute here in G1. So we'll look to piece all that together and make sure um, that's part of the use of rec. If we have to hire additional folks, we're looking and doing that as well. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, 
A new interagency council aims to improve financial assistance programs across the government. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The White House recently established a new interagency council. It's called COFA, Council on Federal Financial Assistance. It will consist of grant-making agencies with the aim of making financial assistance more accountable and equitable. For more, we turn to the Deputy Controller at the Office of Management and Budget, Deidre Harrison. Ms. Harrison, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. It's nice to see you. And this council is modeled after councils that have been going on almost since time immemorial, fair to say? Absolutely. I actually have the privilege of chairing two of those councils, the CFO Council and the Federal Real Property Council. And my first question concerns the announcement said grant-making agencies, and that covers a lot of territory and financial assistance. By that, you're not referring to, say, grants that go to scientific research at colleges and universities, but maybe like the block grants for the different benefits programs that go to the states? So we're actually going to cover all of it. Where we're going to start is to make sure that we're bringing together all agencies that provide federal financial assistance and are sharing best practices with each other. So ultimately, this council will include all sorts of federal financial assistance. So both of your examples that you mentioned. Because virtually every agency provides financial assistance in some form. That's right. And to that end, our council will include an individual that's been identified by the deputy secretary for each of the 24 CFO Act agencies. So all of those large department and agencies that you all probably talk about a lot, as well as a representative from the small agency council to make sure that we're getting good coverage across the federal government. Yes, because you also have the large components of the big departments that make big grant dollars also, like HHS has NIH, for example. That's right. And an important part of this council is to make sure that agencies are internally busting their silos. So today, sometimes inside those agencies, across those components, they don't have as much consistency as we would like. And so this council will make sure that the representative for each agency can represent all of the components, as well as speak on behalf of the agency and then come together and share across agencies that more coordinated messaging. And grant-making is a highly regulated function, and each agency has criteria for the grants it will make. So what's the issue here? What is it you're trying to solve? Sure. It's even more complicated than that, actually. It's not just each agency, but each program has its own underlying statutory authority. That being said, for entirely too long, we've been focused on all of the differences across programs rather than trying to identify where we have similarities. So what this council will do is make sure that we are working together to identify opportunities to reduce burden on applicants and recipients. We are improving our program effectiveness by ensuring efficient delivery, and we are sharing best practices across the board. So we're not going to just continue to focus on those differences, but instead identify where, in fact, we can and should be learning from each other. So, for example, if one agency has a really good streamlined process of having people apply and receive grants, maybe that could be replicated at places where there's 1,700 pages of forms. That's exactly right. So, for example, today, Health and Human Services, HHS, does a lot of grant making, and they have been very actively working on improving their NOFOs, their notice of funding opportunities. We want to make sure that those lessons are learned across the board one time, not make each agency or each component of an agency learn those lessons again. We want to have a forum by which to share, and that's what this council will provide for us. 
I mean, the issue then is not really identifying great practices. People can show those, but it's getting the other people to say, yeah, I'll try that, because every agency can justify its bureaucratic ways for some reason or another. Sure, absolutely. But it's also making sure that agencies are aware because, for example, when things are moving very quickly, you may not know that there is a better way to do things. And this council will make sure that you are hearing what others are working on. So right now, I'm actually in the process of meeting one-on-one with each of the agency representatives and asking them, what is it that your agency does particularly well that you think you should be sharing with the other agencies that they might not know? And it's been great to hear myself, and I can't wait to bring together the whole group and have them share with each other those really important lessons or important ways that each agency is working to improve their grant-making processes. We're speaking with Deidre Harrison. She's Deputy Controller at the Office of Management and Budget and also chairing this new Council on Federal Financial Assistance. And are there any things you can think of right now that have come to light that you might say, golly, we could all try that? Sure. So there's a lot of them. One of the areas I'm most excited about is your listeners may have heard that last week ONB issued proposed changes to our uniform grants guidance. It's basically the common denominator for all the administrative requirements for grants across the board. Well, we've rewritten it and we've proposed a large number of changes that in the coming months we hope to make final. I will tell you in the past, the government hasn't done as good of a job coordinating on implementing those changes in a way that recipients really felt that all at the same time, all in the same way. So in all of these meetings I'm having with folks, they can't wait to roll up their sleeves and get to the ground running on how to implement these changes in a unified and consistent way so that recipients at the same time in the same way can be applying to programs more consistently and effectively. Is there any sense of how many entities might be eligible or trying to apply for more than one grant program? In other words, if I'm a labor agency or a employment agency at the state, and I'm going to apply for unemployment. I mean, they get grants for unemployment expenditure every year. That's one thing. But I'm probably not going to try to get a scientific study to look at, you know, the arachnids in my region and how to eradicate them. How much commonality is there across the different programs? And at what point does the program requirement diverge from the operation of grants mechanism? Sure. It's a great question and one that we are studying and hope to learn more about. So today, if you're a recipient of federal funding above a certain threshold, right now it's $750,000 in our proposed changes, it'll be a million dollars. If you are a large recipient, you have to undergo what's called a single audit. So that is one way where we can identify these recipients that have funding streams from multiple agencies or multiple programs. What we need to do is a better job at identifying the full universe. But there are thousands of these recipients out there, but some of it really comes down to how do you define a recipient. So, for example, the state may have lots and lots of funding coming in, but it's their Department of Health or their Department of Transportation. Is that really the same recipient? In some states, maybe. In other states, definitely not. And so really understanding those things is one of the areas where this council will be very effective at bringing together the right folks to have those conversations and make sure that we are treating recipients similarly when they are similarly situated and not when they shouldn't be. Yes, because at the state level, you might have multiple departments within a state, and they all have a stovepiped system, and some systems are really secure. They have really good anti-fraud mechanisms. Others might just be kind of a spigot of money that they don't know where it goes. 
Sure. And that is why we need to create that common denominator across all programs. It shouldn't be the case that our requirements, whether they be reporting requirements or security requirements, are all that fundamentally different. You may need to go above and beyond, but you should be making sure that all of your programs have the same base set of requirements. And that's what this council is going to help to make sure we're doing. Again, not just across agencies, but also inside agencies across their own programs. Sure. And will part of the council's work be making sure that anti-fraud programs, I mean, I, I keep thinking of what happened during the pandemic relief, and, you know, charitably, 30% of it went to fraud, waste, and abuse. We don't really know the extent yet. And that can't keep happening, even with new programs or existing programs. So is part of the rulemaking that you described and part of the council's work ensuring just accountability of money that the government has not been so great on all the time. Absolutely. While we do not yet know what the extent of the fraud, waste, and abuse was during the pandemic, I think everyone can agree that it was absolutely too much. And we are doing a lot, and this council will help us to do even more. Probably the most important uh, new initiative we've undertaken on the fraud, waste, and abuse part, what has become known as joint review meetings, where effectively we bring together the program staff with their agency IG, with me and my team at ONB, with the White House team, before the program starts to issue funding to really talk about what's working and not working, where are the possibilities for fraud, what are the reporting requirements, and making sure that we are sharing those lessons before those programs are being administered. I have no doubt that the CAFA are going to help us to do even more of that with the existing programs. In some sense, with all of these new programs, it's been easy to identify who to get ahead of. However, we also need to make sure we're identifying the programs across the board that need to have a little bit more of a reevaluation, and that's what this council will help us to do. And how does the council itself meet? Will you have physical in-person meetings? And it sounds like it would be an all-day affair to be able to really hash things out. Sure. So uh, we have not yet had our first meeting. Uh, agencies had until uh, a few weeks ago to identify their senior accountable officials, which they all have done. We are in the process right now of setting up our first conversation, hopefully for later this month. I do hope that it will be entirely or very much primarily in person. And that first couple of sessions that we have will be to really establish the framework to make sure that we can continue to deliver on all of the success that individually we know we want to have this council to have. And by the way, the senior accountable officials, do they tend to be the CFO type of channels or program people in general? It's a great question, and I will tell you it varies by agency, and it's one of the things that we are working on with our agency partners, because the critical piece is that the individual is senior enough that they are able to talk on behalf of their agency, but they're also in the financial assistance space, so they know enough about grants management that when we get in the room and have those conversations, we can be really problem-solving. And so I will tell you, it is a mixed bag. I have both procurement, CFO, and program folks, all that are joining and can't wait to hit the ground running. Deidre Harrison is Deputy Controller at the Office of Management and Budget. Thanks so much for joining me. It was my pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about the Council on Federal Financial Assistance, CAFA, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, less than a week in, contractors sort out the meaning of the 45-day continuing resolution. But first, a national lab wants to make complex chemistry problems just a little bit more solvable. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Computational chemistry may not be at the top of your concerns. In reality, it's a key to solving some of the world's biggest problems. But it takes massive amounts of computing power, something not everyone has access to until now. The Pacific Northwest National Laboratory is collaborating with Microsoft and Micron Technology to make computational chemistry broadly available to applied researchers and industrial users. For more, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with the PNNL scientist leading the effort, Carol Kowalski. So we are trying to bring a new form of executing high-performance computational chemistry software on uh, cloud computing. This is a new way of approaching exascale resources and performing high-level simulations for chemistry needs. So this is at the nexus of theory, uh, computation, high-performance computing, and technology. So we basically bring together the teams of the computational chemists, computational and theoretical chemists, computer scientists and uh, in the industry, we are connecting our software with uh, new technological advances at Microsoft and, and Micron, which allows us to perform really large-scale calculations at the, in the cost and energy efficient manner, right? It's very important because uh, scientific calculations, simulations do not come for free. We have to pay for, for, for many, many aspects of this process, right? So we hope to achieve this goal by, by migrating to, to cloud computing. And what exactly does that involve uh, when you're doing so many calculations via cloud computing? Um, you know, I, I, I naturally just think of, wow, that's a lot to be done on the cloud, but I guess it can handle it. Yeah, it's a very interesting process and at the same way, very complicated. Because uh, what is the cloud computing, first question? It's a kind of pool of the interconnected hardware resources. This might be a server, this might be a computational unit, this might be uh, storage devices. So we have to uh, come up with the algorithms that can make those pieces of the hardware talking to each other to achieve the performance, which is pretty close to those exascale machines right now supported by DOE. So they are mostly located at the leadership class uh, supercomputing centers, but uh, of course, getting access to those uh, to those machines is really hard. And it, this is a bottleneck for broad utilization of the computational chemistry software. So we are trying to to address this this issue in in our project. This might be very important. I mean, aspect of the uh, of this proposal, we want to provide some kind of democratized access to the wide community of the computational chemists to, to, to supercomputing uh, resources. So this, is, this is very important. Yeah, and, and about that bottleneck. So, you know, there, there are a myriad of projects, I imagine, that the government supercomputers are, are being utilized for and they're being kept busy. Is that one of the main reasons for reaching out for an industry partner such as Microsoft and Micron? That's a very good question. So basically, we believe that uh, with this new technology, with just loose on the horizon, so I'm talking about the high-performance cloud and new by, by Microsoft and uh, new types of the memory systems developed by uh, Micron, uh, we can develop a new class of simulations for the chemistry. We can really operate, uh, we can uh, bring to the picture a very novel uh, ways of utilizing machine learning algorithms, right, which wouldn't be possible if we only relied on the supercomputing resources are LCFs, like uh, extra scale machine in, in Argon or Oak Ridge, right? 
we need to have a steady access to the to the big machines to basically build those models. And you want to be able to jump to the front of the line. That's exactly the point. So basically what we want to achieve through this cloud computing, the merger of the state-of-the-art methods and the cloud computing, we really want to achieve unprecedented level of accuracy in our predictions, which is really necessary to to describe chemical processes, which are very important for the, not only for the industry, but also for the nation economy and for nation safety. Yeah, so let's get down to the actual project itself now that we've gotten set the scene, sort of. Computational chemistry, not a uh, term that many people use, and you're trying to get it out more into the forefront of everybody's day-to-day lives. Can you uh, just explain to me what it is? I imagine it's just instead of actually pouring the chemicals from a test tube, you're you're just having the computer say, actually, this is what would happen. (laughs) Yeah, I will will be trying to give you as crisp answer as I can, but computational Chemistry, what we mean is a set of algorithms which are deeply rooted in the in the postulates of quantum mechanics, because the quantum mechanics uh, really governs uh, most of the in, let's put this 99,99 percent of the of the processes we are we are interested, right? So computational chemistry is trying to describe the the properties and behavior of uh, molecules of you know of chemical processes using those laws of the quantum mechanics. So how it looks in practice, those laws, equations, are translated in, into the code. And uh, my main interest is to develop the parallel codes, which can help us in, in minimizing the time to solution. We don't want to wait years or decades to get the number, one single number, for example. Right? We want to get this information uh, within uh, maybe day, within maybe hours, and if we have uh, big machines or supercomputers or high-performance clouds, we want to get within a minute. So this is the goal, to get the answer as quickly as we can. So as I said, this is a very complex problem, right, to solve, and there are several aspects which have to be addressed at the same time. So this is a kind of challenging part of the, of, the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the project because we are involved so many aspects. We have to address so many aspects to make it working that, uh, this will require the the concerted effort of, of the group of 30 people, around 30 people. Yeah, and something that could shorten that timeline, I imagine, are the are AI and machine learning aspects of Microsoft's and Micron systems. What role will they be playing in this process? Exactly. So this is um, this is a very interesting workflow because we should see this as a, as a workflow. So. We are using each technology for a different purpose, actually. We are planning to use uh, Microsoft uh, High Performance Cloud to generate high quality, high accuracy data for the machine learning and AI procedures, while the whole training machine learning uh, uh, algorithms are going to be executed using the Micron technology. They came up with the kind of novel solution for the, for the memory, computer memory, and for if you want really to train using this ML, machine learning models, effectively, you have to be able to process a huge amount of data, and it takes a lot of memory. Now, Micron has this new technology which offers a huge memory we can play with, and we can get pretty fast access to the data residing in that memory. So this is kind of a game changer. If we put all those pieces together, I guess we can define uh, some new form of the chemical uh, simulations, we actually have a name for that. This is uh, computational chemistry as a service. So uh, many groups without access to 
supercomputing resources can use the service to perform large-scale calculations. So looking at timeline here, what are we looking at as far as, you know, people coming to you and saying, hey, I have this highly complex uh, algorithm and problem that I'm looking to try and put into a supercomputer and see what <laughs> see what kind of chemistry happens from it. Are we at that stage currently or have we reached it yet? What, what are we looking at here? So we are in the kind of uh, prototyping phase. Uh, there's several things we have to really address before we go uh, broad, uh, broadly with the, with the broad uh, community of, for example, code developers, right? But we want to have, what we really want to achieve in two years, we would like to make the infrastructure ready for the people to, to chime in. So basically, use as a sandbox for all the people who are really having interest in the large uh, simulations and chemical processes. So the first two years, we will focus mainly to provide uh, efficient tools to make sure that uh, we provide the most efficient utilization of those cloud systems. And then once we have the optimized infrastructure, we'll let people to use it. So we have two group of users, developers, who will be able to use uh, cloud computing for development of the models. And the other class of uh, users are the you know application scientists which will be using uh, the software we are going to enable on the on the cloud to run uh, large-scale simulations. Carol Kowalski, a scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. You can find this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still to come, less than a week in, contractors are sorting out the meaning of that 45-day continuing resolution. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The continuing resolution, which lasts until November 17th, takes a six-and-a-half-week bite out of fiscal 2024's calendar. In a sense, it resets the countdown to a government shutdown. Contractors have been sorting out what this all means. We get an update from the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, golly, last week we thought we would be talking about something totally different. Everyone thought this train wreck was going to happen. Can you derail a train wreck? I guess that's what they <laughs> succeeded in doing. It sounds that way, although, you know, the train wreck is still a potential, right? At the end of the day, this is a continuing resolution. It is not a set of 12 full-year appropriations bills. And that's what the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023 passed earlier this year requires. You know, if we don't get all 12 full-year appropriations acts passed and signed into law by the president by January 1st, the word we haven't talked of, or, you know, it's kind of the Voldemort of federal funding, right? Of That of which should not be spoken. Sequestration happens early next year if they don't pass all 12 bills. And a 1% haircut across all federal programs will happen. So we're watching at PSC very closely what Congress is doing on those 12 full-year appropriations bills and advising our member companies of what they need to watch out for as well. Yeah. And so for companies that are doing business with the government or hope to, it's really hard to tell what this all means. I mean, we have a CR now. And so people that had bids out for awards for new programs, that's still on hold, right? Right. We're still under the typical continuing resolution restrictions of no new starts, et cetera. Now, what's good is, you know, we're continuing FY23 funding levels, which for some agencies is better than they would have gotten under the Fiscal Responsibility Act. That said, 
that specter of shutdown looms again come November 17th. And, you know, as we watch what's going on in the House and to some extent in the Senate, wondering whether or not appropriations bills can be passed and we'll be facing another short-term CR come mid-November. And agencies can always impose stop work orders if they feel they don't have the money. And that could really hit very suddenly and be a kind of unpleasant surprise. You know, Tom, I'm glad you raised that because when we think about a shutdown or a lapse in appropriations, it's oftentimes the contractors who bear the brunt of those actions. You know, without funding, contracts are subject to stop work orders. And my concern lately has been really focused on the smaller companies that don't have the operating funds. They don't have access to lines of credit. You know, they may well have to furlough or lay off some of their critical employees. And in this tight job market, it'd be tough to get those folks back working on a government contract when funding is restored. So we are looking at a perfect storm of workforce shortages, funding shortages, and a lot of inconsistency and uncertainty on the congressional front. So this is an area where PSC is tracking a lot very, very closely. And if you look at that potential 1% sequestration reduction, that could be magnified for contracting activities because if agencies don't lay anybody off and the federal workforce stays the same size, plus it gets a 5 or something percent pay raise, as it's expected to do come January 1st, well, then that means it's really not a 1% across the board. It's 1% in total, but it's going to be unevenly distributed, and contracting might take more than a 1% hit. That's exactly right. When you look at what the government spends money on, it spends money on military personnel, civilian personnel, contracts, and what's discretionary in all of this will be the contracts. There's not going to be a a massive reduction in force come January 1, 2024, if 12 appropriations bills aren't passed. And so we are tracking very closely what the intent is here. One issue that also came to the fore because we got so close to a shutdown A lot of the departments and agencies, the vast majority of the large ones, submitted and and had posted to the White House website their contingency plans for shutdowns. They talked a lot about designating individuals who work for the government who are exempt from furlough or who we would call colloquially essential personnel. There was very little discussion of that we could see publicly of what they would do with contracts. And so going forward, PSC is going to remain vigilant on making sure that the departments and agencies talk to their contracting officers who then in turn talk to contractors because this situation of uncertainty again i reference this perfect storm of a tight workforce and potential lack of funding really really puts government contractors back on their heels yeah it's a great partnership as they like to say until the squeeze is on (laughs) then you see who's the senior partner We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She's Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And there's another practical matter that has come to light, and that is the expiration of waivers for Section 889. Now, that's the provision in one of the NDAAs of recent years, which prohibited use of Chinese-made telecommunications equipment in federal contracts and federal systems. But waivers were possible under 889, I guess, if you had to have it. Now those waivers could expire, and that's causing some problems. It is, Tom, and I'm glad that you raised this because it is coming to a head in recent months. That is to say, 889, which is a bugaboo for some folks in terms of they react very viscerally to to hearing those numbers and that combination, really does restrict the government on entering into extending or renewing contracts that have in any way, shape, or form a significant reliance on Companies like Huawei and others, Chinese telecoms companies, as you mentioned, the Department of Defense and other agencies did have waiver authority, but key 
departments and agencies did not have waiver authority. And these are things like the General Services Administration, which manages a multiple award schedule program, and it didn't offer such a waiver. So the question then becomes, you know, can GSA accept another agency's waiver when that agency is the customer? A few weeks ago, GSA officials started to alert entities who hold these programs that there's no available pathway to a waiver so that they were going to start canceling contracts. This has sent quite a chill through the community of contractors, as you can imagine, because in some countries, there is no Verizon. There is no, um, I almost said MCI, but that's dating me. Huawei is really the only game in town if you want to be connected to the internet. And so it's not just about equipment, it's about services and support and systems. And there are countries where they have a Chinese backbone and we provide U.S. assistance. And so this is really putting a squeeze on those companies who work in these regions of the world. All right. So what is the prospect? And if the waivers expire, are you seeing the cancellation of contracts? We are seeing the notices to cancel contracts, usually about 30 days out. The companies are getting these notices. We have raised this issue with GSA. We will continue to raise it that if that company does hold a waiver from another agency, GSA Uh, should consider accepting it. There should be some reciprocity because that company has already gone through the disclosure requirements to get that waiver. So as we move forward, we're going to encourage sort of common sense approach to, you know, take Ethiopia, for example, you're not going to find a U.S. provider there of telecoms. You'll find Chinese. And so if we're going to work with the Ethiopians in exercises in assistance programs, we're going to have to make an exception in that case. So that affects the Defense Department, potentially. It also affects agencies like the State Department, USAID, and really a bunch of them that operate programs in in distant nations. That's exactly right. And they are also the users of these GSA multiple award schedules. And so as we move forward, we're going to have to work not just with GSA, but with the other agencies to make sure they're aware of this issue. And we're all sort of rowing in the same direction on this. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Never a dull moment. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. It is back to business as usual for federal employees for a month and a half anyhow. Congress may have avoided a government shutdown over the weekend, but the House and Senate are still far apart on a comprehensive spending deal for the rest of the fiscal year, and that's got some feds worried about a lapse in funding just in time for Thanksgiving. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. Hundreds of thousands of federal employees prepared for a government shutdown that was all but certain until it wasn't. Just hours before the deadline at midnight Saturday, Congress avoided a government shutdown by passing a continuing resolution. That stopgap funding bill gives lawmakers until November 17th to work out a bipartisan spending deal for the rest of fiscal 2024. But federal employees aren't celebrating or letting their guard down just yet. LaRonda Gamble is the president of the American Federation of Government Employees, Local 12, and an employee at the Labor Department. At a barbecue held by the union on Saturday, before lawmakers moved ahead with the stopgap spending bill, Gamble said bargaining unit members have been saving up in preparation for a government shutdown. A lot of our members are actually living paycheck to paycheck because some people automatically think if you're a government employee that you make this big astronomical amount of money when in fact we're being paid less than what some people are being paid on the outside. 
Tyra McClelland is AFGE District 14's National Women's Advisory Coordinator and an employee with the Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency. She says the October 1st shutdown deadline came at a really challenging time for feds. Federal student loan borrowers started making payments on Saturday after the Education Department ended a three-year pandemic-era pause on repayments. Federal employees also had to figure out rent or mortgage payments at the start of a new month. McClelland says she and her co-workers, who would keep working without pay during a shutdown, tightened household spending as much as possible, not knowing whether they'd receive their next paycheck on time. You have to do what I call furlough math. Furlough math is you normally let your daughter take a shower. You don't care how long she's in there. Now with furlough math, you care. When it comes to furlough math, you have to figure out, hmm, would I normally have a large load of laundry? Oh, we're going to have a super large load of laundry. It's just the little things. And I don't think people understand that you have to do mathematical equations on absolutely positively every aspect of your life. The new deadline raises the stakes since lawmakers run the risk of a government shutdown just before Thanksgiving. That would take a toll on feds during the holiday season, which is also a peak season for travel. As a reminder, airport security personnel at the Transportation Security Administration keep working during a shutdown, but without pay. During some of the longer government shutdowns, the TSA faced staffing issues as more TSA officers called out of work with the shutdown dragging on. McClelland says the uncertainty weighs on federal employees who are still figuring out their new normal after the COVID-19 pandemic disrupted their lives. It's disappointing to hear people saying, oh, they've been through this before. They should already know how to do this. It's different each time. Many federal employees will receive their next paycheck on October 14th. Those employees would have seen a partial paycheck if a government shutdown occurred and lasted for two weeks or longer. But McClelland says the not knowing is particularly hard on federal employees. The anxiety level, and it's an unnecessary emotion that our government leaders put us in. We we voted you into the office and then you turn around and you do this to us. Patrick Holmes is also an employee at the Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency, and he's chief shop steward for AFGE Local 727. He says he's saving as much as he can. I have to provide for my kids, provide for family members, so not knowing when you will get the next paycheck is stressful, and then you don't want to have stress already working in law enforcement. It could be already stressful, and then adding more stress on top of not knowing when you're going to get paid, it's just going to be a stressful situation. How can you go in and perform your duties and be productive out in the workforce when you're in the back of your mind? You don't know when your next paycheck is coming. Holmes says a government shutdown can have a ripple effect on federal employees in law enforcement and national security jobs. Excessive debts can prevent some candidates from obtaining a security clearance or passing a federal background check. And within the federal government, you have to keep up a, a standard. You can't have certain debt working with the federal government. So Congress should understand that when we become behind, our jobs are potentially at risk because we are delinquent on our bills, and you can't do that. You can't be delinquent on your bills being a federal government employee. Agencies also scrambled late last week to determine what funds, if any, were available to keep employees paid for at least the first week of a shutdown. The Department of Housing and Urban Development told employees in an email that the agency would stay open a week into a government shutdown. 
HUD told employees that they would work as normal with pay and scheduled travel and leave. Sal Viola is president of AFGE Council 222, which represents 5,000 HUD employees. He says HUD usually furloughs most of its workforce and that the plan to stay open came as a surprise to him. I think the employees are very confused. This is the first time that, you know, HUD is actually having a different shutdown the rest of the government. HUD's carryover funds during a shutdown might have softened the financial impact to federal employees, but Viola says the funding could have gone to better use on staffing. He says the agency hasn't been hiring to keep up with its rate of attrition over the past two years. There's more retirements now than ever. Employees cannot just keep up. But not all agencies can afford to keep the lights on. Gamble says her agency, the Labor Department, would furlough a majority of its workforce in the event of a shutdown. It will be a very skeletal crew. It will be individuals that have to go in to do the basics to make sure the government can still function somewhat with the activities that will still be going on that are considered accepted um, activities. So those individuals will have to go in to handle those things. Gamble says the annual uncertainty of a government shutdown makes it hard to hold down an otherwise good government job. And other feds feel the same way, too. The Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency received the worst grade among mid-sized agencies. That's according to the best places to work in the federal government ranking from the Partnership for Public Service. Holmes says the routine threat of a government shutdown makes it hard for the federal government to recruit the next generation of employees to join the agency. It's hard to recruit. Knowing that we have an aluminum shutdown, it's going to be hard to recruit that age group of 40 and under because they're going to be like, why should I waste my time and career working for a, a government that don't appreciate me and not knowing when my next check is going to come? So it's going to be hard to recruit those members. It's going to be hard to retain those members. The House and Senate are no closer to a comprehensive spending deal for the rest of the fiscal year. The House and Senate are no closer to a spending deal. The Senate has a full slate of spending bills ready for a full vote. They keep most non-defense discretionary spending frozen at current levels. But the House is still working on its own version of those bills that push for spending cuts. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters that the clock is ticking. They don't have to wait 45 days to get this done. They really don't. There's no excuse for another crisis. Jory Heckman Federal News Network. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, I'm Tom Tammen. <laughs> 